Welcome to AIs and with Andrew and Jen, a podcast where a designer and a data scientist break it down and duke it out over how to create awesome AI experiences. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to AI Zen with Andrew and Jen. Jen, it's been far too long. How have you been? <laughs> it's been so long. I've been lonely. They sent me home. I have no friends to play with at work anymore, but otherwise fine. I, I feel the same. This is a, this COVID times, it's pretty challenging for all of us. I, I hope you're all uh, happy, healthy, and safe at home. Um, but it is wonderful to be talking with each of you again. Uh, I apologize. It's been a long time since we've had one of these, and it's my fault. I, I left my <laughs> microphone at the office, uh, and uh, we've been asked to stay away um, with, with good reason. So t- today I was able to get in. I had to get a few layers of management approval uh, just to enter the building. So um, I appreciate the the good contact contact tracing that we were doing. Uh, but I, I looked like Ray in, in Star Wars, all, all bundled up with my backpack full of goods and I've got the microphone. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Can we post your apocalypse IBM building picture for this podcast? <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to have to, I think. Awesome. So I'm excited for today's show. We we have a, a guest with us. We have Clay Bunyard from the University of Houston, and uh, he's going to talk to us about uh, several things, including a recent paper, The Future of Organizational Creativity in 2035. Uh, when this paper, when Jen found this paper, she started fangirling, and we immediately decided <laughs> we had to do a show about this. So we're, we're so happy to have you, uh, Clay. Uh, can you say hi and introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm Clay Bunyard. I' uh, happy to be here, and I'm uh, yeah did this report as a graduate student, University of Houston. Um, I also work in the consumer products industry. You know, been doing that about twenty years, so it's uh, been an interesting way to look at the kind of the connections of a lot of this technology and how innovation might work in the future. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, just pulling away from the the title, the the future of organizational creativity in twenty thirty five. I think to myself, I have a hard time thinking about what's what's coming in in a year or two. Um, can you tell us how you um, set up this time frame? What um, and how do you think we're going to get there? What kind of stages are we going to go through? Yeah. So the the first question is a little easier to answer than the second, but uh, the yeah, so futurists, you know, they, they tend to look out much further, you know, so much further beyond than two to three years or five years even. Uh, often, you know, at least 10 years, 20, you know, maybe even 50, uh, which can get a little bit harder to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I picked that time frame because it allows a bit more freedom of uh, an openness about how things might change in the future. Uh, you can be a little bit um, more provocative, and, and that allows uh, you to use the scenarios that came out of the study to kind of think more broadly around the, how the future might play out. And and what do you think is sort of the the first biggest change that we're going to notice here in the as we get to this future of organizational creativity? Um, so uh, the report, I guess, one of the things that. I started from was this idea that uh, technology is going to have a very large influence on innovation in the future. So I think certainly that's the biggest piece of it 
is uh, the incorporation of technology, whether it's artificial intelligence or virtual reality, artificial uh, uh, augmented reality, you know, big data, you name it. this could play a much bigger role. And then really the, the questions trying to answer was what role will it play um, and to what degree in the future? So that, that's really what I was trying to explore. Yeah. Can I jump in here, Andrew? Yeah, go. go ahead. Okay. Please. So um, for all of our listeners who are coming at this from the design perspective, the reason I got so excited when I saw Clay's report was what we're really talking about here is like, the future of the future of innovation. And so like if you work on future of products or you're passionate about the future of technology, this is a whole report about like how we're going to work on future of products and not like from the perspective of, oh, there's new technology that we'll use, but rather like how that technology is going to change the creative innovation process, which I haven't seen anything on this. Um, I think it's a very new perspective what I see a lot of is companies trying to talk about how they are establishing a creative, innovative culture, but they're kind of doing it in old school ways. And Clay, you talk a little bit about this in your paper. Maybe you could um, share with us just kind of the history of this innovation process and how we got from you know yesterday to where we are today. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with what you just said is, um, you know, there's a lot of history, you know, even if I go way back, you know, you know, the word brainstorming, you know, ideation, all of that terminology is, you know, 50, 60 years old, you know, and companies have been doing that to varying degrees over the years. And, you know, if we think about more like the past 20 years, that that's when I think one of the more prominent approaches like design thinking it, it appeared. Right. You know, so I think that's mm-hmm. a, a big buzzword today of of how companies, particularly consumer products, companies, consumer facing companies uh, try to innovate, you know, understand the consumer um gain empathy with the consumer to really understand where their needs are and then innovate from there. And those approaches are, are, are much more prevalent, but they're, even that is not very pervasive or integrated into, say, every company out there. Um, it, it's, it's, it's one thing that's hard to understand because there's not a lot of, I'd say, data to know who's doing what. We certainly know about the big companies that are employing these kind of innovation methods, but we don't know everyone who is mm-hmm. um, and to what degree. Um, and as I think about it, that's kind of the, the greatest level of advance we've reached. I mean, more recent years, you know, concepts like the Lean Startup, And, you know, Google has had design sprints. So there's certainly a range of different methodologies that are continuing to evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the more recent ones are more entrepreneurial in mindset, you know, how to do things very quick and fast, how to help big companies think like small companies, you know, and entrepreneurs, things like that. But I think that's the state to which it's evolved. There's not a lot of conversation around, okay, how are we going to incorporate advancements in technology into that and and leverage that to innovate. I think much beyond like say big data, there's a lot of talk about how do we leverage big data to innovate. Uh, But 
certainly not in, I say, the methodologies as we think about the creativity methods that we employ, how do technology involve, get involved with that. Um, there's not a lot out there. And I think that's one of the more surprising things that at least came out of the study I did was, wow, you can really combine the two, I think, to make it even better in the future. Yeah. So that's a big surprise for me. Ugh, it gives me chills. Like, yes, somebody's finally talking about how are we going to like pair AI with humans to be even more creative and come up with ideas that we couldn't have had if we didn't have these insights into big data that AI can deliver to us. Um, I wanted to cite like a, one quote in your paper, you called out future drivers of organizational creativity. And one of the um, six elements that you pointed out was tech augmented creativity. You defined it as technological innovations will increasingly free up time for humans to be creative, but will also create immersive environments and data-based insights to enhance the human creative process. Could you just like describe to me if I'm walking into my future office, like what that looks like, what that means to you? Yeah. So I, I'll describe it maybe in an ideal world, uh, yeah. what that might look like. Um, so just thinking about the workforce of the future and how we might work, um, just imagine, you know, Maybe companies are using contractors, you know, that aren't um, integrated, you know, full-time employees, um, maybe uh, remote workers, you know, as well, uh, which, of course, we're in the biggest experiment of that today. Uh, remote workers, freelancers, contractors, uh, a much more diverse workforce, right? So you're, there's going to be a lot of, uh, I think, challenges for companies to build, you know, a culture that's highly collaborative. There's lots of trust just because, you know, if you've got people spread out everywhere, they're not like, you know, integrated into the culture. Uh, how do you get those groups to really work together? And I think that's where the technology can certainly help. Uh, so imagine, you know, you've got, you know, people all over the world, but with virtual reality or augmented reality, it, it feels like you're in the same room, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think that that's, if people can just interact like that on a daily basis, not just in like a workshop, that I, I think that can help to build that trust and those relationships that you need uh, to really um, be creative as, a, uh, as an organization and, and teams. So I think there's pieces like that. Um, I think there's ways in which the technology can, I'd say, remind us to be more creative, <laughs> you know, you know, so help us to adopt creative behaviors. I mean, th those are things, you know, that I teach now in classes and I'm sure you do too with design thinking and in workshops is we try to get people to adopt certain mindsets and behaviors uh, to bring that creativity that they already have, you know, out in the open and, and we can um, leverage it to come up with new ideas. So now um, can you use, you know, I'm imagining like uh, the new Google glass, you know, like something people would actually would wear, maybe it's contacts, you know, or something like that, which, Hey, maybe when you're talking in a meeting, you know, maybe it prompts you to ask a question a certain way or, 
maybe even prompts you to use a design thinking tool or, or something that actually kind of nudges you to ah. adopt the behaviors that you should have, you know, in group settings or, or just on your own so that you um, are inherently more creative. Because I think the trick um, and I think the frustration I have today is just like teaching the stuff and facilitating these things is we've known these things about creativity for decades, but it's still not integrated in how companies work. You know, yeah, Clay, this, this reminds me, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, this reminds me of a, of a saying our, our general manager, Rob Thomas, has that uh, managers who uh, don't use AI will be replaced with those who do. Mm-hmm. And I think the way I've traditionally read that is like if you don't have an AI model helping you, you're going to make the wrong decision. You're going to give out the wrong loan or reject the wrong loan applicant, right? You won't find a cancer on an image. You know, you'll, you'll make kind of mistakes in the data analysis uh, type, type of phase, right? But I'm reading your, um, your paper, your thinking as, as sort of the, the opposite end of the spectrum. If I'm not using um, AI and, and tools in, in the front, I'm not going to be creative enough. So if I'm mm-hmm. a, if I'm a manager and I'm saying, oh my gosh, if I don't use AI, I'm going to get replaced. If I've been thinking about it from that decision point of view, or you know, the data analysis point of view, what's like one or, or two concrete steps I ought to be doing uh, so that I can uh, use this technology to help me and my group be more creative. So if we try to think about now, uh, what? You know, so let's be a little bit of brainstorming here, uh, just to kind of imagining some possibilities. Are there ways uh, to build, you know, AI algorithms or something that help can maybe walk people through, you know, a, a particular creative process? Um, that would be new. I don't think anything exists like that today. So I'm just going to jump in here because. Yeah. Um, Two things like one work has been done like this and it is super, it's becoming more and more relevant now because of the situation that we're in. Obviously everybody is trying to imagine a better way to collaborate Mm -hmm. while being distanced. Years ago, Microsoft did this super cool, like holo teleporter project where uh, it was kind of like this device that you wore and the person that you were talking to could actually see you like your full body in the room Mm -hmm. um, walking around. So like they could walk up to the whiteboard in your room as like a hologram. And this is like, I'm not talking about like they drew sketches of it, like they built it. And that's so cool. Um, So I'm excited about stuff like that. But I think with AI and what you guys are talking about um, in terms of like helping people make better decisions, have better foresight, or even instigating like behavioral changes that we wish, you know, design thinking was just an everyday part of our lives and our you know, the way we like work, it requires consciousness and, you know, some effort to do that. Having AI that can use natural language understanding to understand the context of what somebody is working on, what they're talking about in a meeting, what it is that they want to achieve. That's, I think, like the first step towards then Mm -hmm. being able to recommend 
hey, I under I I'm like 98% sure that you would benefit from doing this design thinking exercise, or you would benefit from looking at these data points to inform the conversation that you're having, which Andrew, you're building that stuff already, right? Oh, yeah, it'll be done by Tuesday. I actually wanted to ask you, like, as you're as you're working with clients now, and I know you do a lot of chatbot work. Has this idea of um, evolving online collaboration come up in any of your projects? Oh, interesting question. Um, I no, I, I think you know our clients are still working through it like we are, and um, I, it, it, we're still kind of in the early stages of it, where just having the better written communication down is is providing a lot of the value right since we're we're not able to you know see each other in the room and have those cues about what we what we were doing when we were together or that we wrote down on the shared whiteboard that at least you know we're we're we've got it documented somewhere what we've done but i i haven't seen that level of you know the the next generation of, of designing or interacting not yet well, I, yeah. think, I think there's a, a, some simple things could be, you know, I'm thinking like a bot, like a Slack bot or something where you could just type, I'm stuck, right? And some bot replies and says, here's a few different ways you can maybe approach what you're, you're, you're thinking about. You know, maybe it pops out a few creativity tools or something, or it asks you some questions to kind of direct you. And uh, are you trying to clarify a problem? You're trying to ideate or whatever. It's just something just to prompt you to remind you and just give a little bit of help. I mean, I think mm-hmm. if you could do simple things like that now, um, that, that would be, I think, amazing. Uh, because right now it requires you to consciously recognize you know, or, or, or know a process or no tools, um, the less we have to teach people and, you know, and maybe get them to practice with the help of technology, that would be great. So like, um, I feel like that would be like the first instantiation would be like a facilitator bot, like yep. always there to kind of like be aware of what you're working on and what challenges you're struggling with and recommend ways to help you. And then the next evolution of that is the collaborator bot where, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like working with someone like a human sitting right beside you and you can bounce ideas back and forth. Yeah, this will date me a bit, but do you remember Clippy from Microsoft Word? Where, oh God. where, where it would say, uh, looks day. like you're writing a letter. You know, same yep. thing. It looks like you're trying to be creative. <laughs> you know, Totally. Yeah. Our designers talk about avoiding the Clippy scenario all the time and trying to like, how can we be smarter than Clippy? We don't want to remake Clippy. Wait, is Clippy the future though? I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Clippy is, yeah, the past coming back. So you had a couple examples of uh, projects that you found out in the world going on that I think we're like kind of beginning to explore how um, technology is changing the way we ideate. And I was wondering, maybe we could talk a little bit about a couple of those because I wasn't, I definitely wasn't familiar with any of them. Well, I'm sure. Um, one that I thought was really interesting was the one from NASA called Petal, mm-hmm. capital P, lowercase e, capital T, lowercase a, capital L. And uh, I'll just I'll just read something um, that you wrote here. So 
It's an application of bio-inspired design process for innovation that exists within a relatively small field of practitioners and academia consultants and a few companies due to the relatively high investment of time and resources and specialized skill sets to find all of the biology, et cetera, and then translate it to the desired problem space. Once Petal is fully operational and with a sizable relevant database, which will take a lot of effort to to develop, anyone including companies will be able to use it to find biological inspiration much more readily for problem solving. Holy cow, tell us about this. Yeah, so so an early stage example of that, and uh, you can look that up, and it's called asknature.org. So that is put together by uh, the Biomimicry 3.8. And that's an early stage. So it's kind of more of a small database uh, of of biological examples, you know, that inspire design. Um, but it's kind of built around a taxonomy. So if you want to say change shape or communicate something like that, a function, you can type that in and it'll give you a few examples. Uh, so that's a very early stage. And what NASA is trying to do is try to, I think, build a way that they can scrape information, this biological information. So imagine it's coming from journals, websites, all of these different places, you know, and categorize it in some way. Uh, that's searchable so that you can then put, you know, what are you trying to, uh, what function or problem are you trying to solve? And it'll hopefully come back with a list of potential related options. I mean, you're not going to get the exact answer, but it's, it'll be a related answer from nature that uh, can hopefully be inspiration or or provide some ideas of how to tackle the problem that you have. And I I went to a conference actually last year about this uh, that NASA hosted. And yeah, it's still still in the early stages of building the actual database. Uh, But yeah, I I think, you know, nature is a, a, it's got 3.8 billion years of inspiration that we've barely tapped into. Uh, So it's getting access to things like this will, you know, help make us more innovative. So just imagine not just uh, biomimicry or bioinspired design, just being able to create searchable, I guess, innovation databases where there's various different fields that uh, you can tap into to get inspiration for uh, whatever you need. So good. So like... I want to make this tangible for our listeners. So um, like a really lame example, guys, would be if you wanted to create Harry Potter's invisibility cloak, um, maybe you would use this system search, like how do I work on invisibility? And I think you're going to get maybe results like the cuttlefish Mm -hmm. and squids and octopuses and how do they camouflage themselves and what can we extract and learn from that, right? So do you have any other examples of like less lame, more interesting ways that this could be used? Well, that's definitely not lame. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so nature would hide camouflage, right? Those are the, the things that you would find in a biology related uh, paper. And then the invisible, right, is probably the human thing that we want. Um, so, you know, how do you move fluids, uh, 
unidirectionally. That's kind of a geeky one, maybe. I don't know. That's, uh, no, that was sounding good. I was with you. But, but there's like a lizard skin that's, um, I could show you videos that are really cool that, you know, it actually, uh, there's a Texas horned lizard. The way it drinks water is it, you know, puts its foot in a pedal and the in, in a puddle, not a pedal puddle and uh, of water in the desert and the water just kind of travels up its skin to its mouth you know so so a lot of 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 different uh you know businesses need you know to move water in a certain way you don't want it uh or it could be like you said uh, camouflage hide uh um, energy transfer change shape always imagine any kind of function out there that you need you could probably ask nature how to do it. It just blows my mind when every now and again, you hear somebody say like, oh, we were trying to solve a problem. And then it occurred to us that nature has been doing this for a million years. And then we went and looked at it and we figured it out. And that I don't hear that more often just makes me so curious about what we could accomplish with something like this pedal system. Very exciting. Yeah. And the the big challenge and, and why I mentioned this is because getting access to the biology is hard. Um, um, and also translating it in a way that those of us who are not biologists can understand and apply it. And that's yeah. why we need systems like this. Which of those do you, do you see as being harder? I mean, inventorying and searching are, are sort of classic problems all, across all sorts of domains. Where do you, which do you think will crack first? I mean, right now, I think is the inventorying is the, is the main challenge. Um, and I guess there's a categorization piece from that. The problem is that a lot of the biologists that are writing the papers, that they're writing them for their own reason. They're not writing them to allow you to extract um, inspiration from it, from a different problem you're trying to solve. So mm. I don't know the, what's the magic that happens that allows a database to create that. I, I don't know. Um, but at least if you can just find the paper um, and if you and I think it's figuring out what search terms to use is the tricky part. So maybe the technology, you know, AI can do some magic around that to figure out how do you translate the language from one domain of expertise to another so that we can talk <laughs> across fields in a productive way. It's it's really tricky. <laughs> so you need some very weird minded subject matter experts to come in and do a bunch of labeling of this data. Weird, right? You just you need people with multiple areas of expertise or, or knowledge with right across domains. Oh, good Lord. I'm so excited that you just said that because it's a really good transition to something that we haven't touched on yet. Um, let me bring up another quote from your paper here. So one of the other things that you talk about is advancements in technology artificial intelligence, automation, virtual augmented reality will have a significant impact on the innovation process by 2035. And then one of the implications you specifically call out is how companies will need to create future polymath innovation teams without placing undue and creativity harming pressure on employees. Let's talk about the polymath future. Uh, What did you learn about this, Clay? So uh, there's a couple of different things to unpack there. I mean, I think, I don't know if it's everywhere, but, you know, at least in a company like where I work and and I think in general, you know, the whole category consumer 
products industry, you, you tend to hire a lot of specialists, you know, engineers or subject matter experts to do research for you um, and, and do project work. I, I think, you know, and again, because of the technology needs, people are probably going to have to diversify their skills a bit more, particularly towards maybe the data science or, you know, the general fields of AI and, and whatnot to be able to be more effective because the assumption I'm making in the future is we're going to have all of this data coming at us that we're going to have that's got valuable insights that we can leverage for innovation. But I can't always just have or our team can't always just have a, a data scientist here or there to help you work with it. I think probably everyone's got to be a data scientist. So if I'm a chemist, I probably need to have some knowledge in data science as well to be more effective. And that's kind of like, I think the initial, not a polymath, probably the other terms are like pie or M-shaped people. So a pie-shaped person would be a person that's got expertise in two different fields. And, you know, M is like three. And polymath is uh, a much broader, you know, expertise or maybe deep expertise in a wide range of fields. So I think, you know, at least a lot more people are going to have to have that kind of data science or kind of technology complement to whatever other field that they have expertise in. And part of that is just so they can understand how to process all of the information uh, in front of, I think that's what's going to be new, you know? Yeah. Uh, j- just a note for the readers I, or the listeners, I, I figured out halfway through your statement about pie-shaped readers. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that. Pi, pi, has two, pi has two legs, right? And M has three legs. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah. that's what makes pie that work. Pi the math symbol, not pi the delicious food. So, yes. so at, IBM, at IBM, we make up three-letter acronyms. So, so Clay, for, to make up words or letters, that's no problem at all for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you're putting this in a report about like, I forget, 15 years out, but actually at the beginning of this year, our SVP, so that's like one level below our CEO, made it uh, an OKR, like a goal of our entire organization to start um, supporting building our employees into polymaths. Use that exact word that you're using. Yeah. And um, it's been kind of an ongoing discussion uh, up and down the reports chain about, you know, how do we help our employees like become more diverse and what kinds of diversity do they need? But I'm seeing like, my job is to work with all different teams across IBM and help them come up with valuable use cases for Watson. And somebody asked me the other day, well, what kind of skill sets would you look for someone to hire on your team? And like the only thing I could think of was like someone that can think really broadly mm-hmm. about like looking at a bunch of different kinds of problems and data points and then a new way to solve for them. And Andrew, I wonder if like what, if if that's something you've noticed on your teams as well, as you're trying to solve problems for clients, that that whole like polymath thing is slowly becoming a need. It's a recipe for success. We keep hearing (laughs) the the average length of a skill. I forget what it is now. It's like three years relevance or something like, so, you know, it's constant, constant learning. Um, and the, the ability to, to learn quickly, adapt to new information. I, th- I think that's key. You know, there was, there was something that went around on, on LinkedIn recently 
that there was a job posting for like a Kubernetes administrator with 10 years experience. And that was the kind of posting that you used to make, right? Because people had 10 years experience in whatever field you were talking about. But, you know, Kubernetes is about a couple years old. So, um, yeah. You don't have these ten-year people, right? They, they, but but you need that that high level of skill. You need it quickly, and you know it's going to be the next thing in a couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. I feel like when I'm looking for those skill sets, and and I'm always, you know, the first people that come to me to be on my team are going to be designers. What I'm looking for is not necessarily what they signed up to do. And I'm not sure who's signing up to do this like creative slash critical thinking. But it does kind of tie into another one of the case studies that you included in your paper, Clay. And this one was from Sony, um, something called the Couve system. Uh, And I really liked the way they described it, incorporating arts into STEM. So it's no longer STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, and math. It's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And the way they were trying to build systems to help young kids learn these different skill sets. Do you remember um, anything? Yeah, definitely. So I I think, you know, that gets to the broader topic of, uh, what do people need to learn and when and, and to what extent, you know, do you need really deep knowledge in it or do you need to know just enough? Um, so I think this is a great signal of change of, you know, trying to build in those different skill sets very early on. You know, it would be great if, you know, creativity was taught as a skill, you know, in early ages and kind of mm-hmm. continued to be taught. I mean, children are naturally creative. Um, it's unfortunately, it's the education system and society, which tends to um, uh, diminish that to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. So can we kind of retain that? And I, I think the example of that, you know, that kind of toy, which kind of, I think teaches, you know, coding in, in a very creative way, you know. Yeah, can you describe exactly what this little system is? Yeah, it's like a, a bunch of uh, blocks, you know, connectable blocks that's got some, you know, sensors and motors, lights, you know, it says bits and bobs, you know, little pieces here and there. And you can build like you could build a robot or, or, or whatever different predetermined things are. Then I'm sure the child after that can kind of create whatever they want to create from there. But it gives them the basic building blocks of here's how you put these things together and kind of build the circuitry to make it all work. And uh, I think because it's got all those different components, it's kind of a bit more learning. So it's not just Lego, right? It's something mm-hmm. like a Lego block. It's It's got all these other elements that helps teach engineering and the math and the technology and You've got the artistic, which I think that's what they're considering the creative piece into it as well. So with, with all this, you know, learning from home, distance education and the, the schooling and whatnot, should I just buy my kids a couve and, and a, a Minecraft kit and stay out of the way? <laughs> yes. May not be a bad idea. I mean, I think certainly giving, you know, children those kind of enrichment experiences that broadens their mindsets, I think... You know, this is a great example, too, of something that will set them up for the future. You know, again, with the assumption that the technology is probably going to be much more integrated into our 
daily lives, maybe every field of work as well, which would be very different than today. That's a really cool idea, though, Andrew, like looking at you and I were talking about this even before the show about how challenging it's going to be now that kids aren't necessarily going back to school and parents are working at the same time. But it might also be a really interesting opportunity to try these new approaches to building critical and creative thinking in our kids with things like Couve. And there are so many things like that out there right now. Like Arduino has a ton of like little kits you can buy to teach kids how to build robots and stuff like that. Yeah, I send some of those little kits to my niece, you know, where it's, you know, some of the little builder kits, you know, they've they've got various different uh, focus areas that you could pick on. If you want to do like engineering, you know, steam or more nature related, you know, just something to broaden their learning experiences. Yeah, totally. That's great. Let's see. There was another one here called listening to the in crowd. And um, it was about the composition of project teams within businesses will become more dynamic and change significantly, significantly with mixtures of full-time and contract workers. And you talk about that a lot in your paper, like this new kind of like it's normal to have freelancers who are brand new to the company's knowledge, as well as full-time employees who might have a ton of knowledge about the company's history working together. How did you, what do you think is bringing this about and where did you see this happening? Yeah, so that that really came from a lot of the trend work, you know, so one of the future drivers is called that dynamic workforce, which you were just talking about, you know, so I think today, you know, the assumption is, you know, within a company is most of the people are co-located, you know, they're full-time people, much less, you know, some contractors perhaps, uh, or, or remote workers, but that the trends are shifting in the direction towards more remote work, more contractors, you know, possibly because of costs or downsizing, uh, maybe more economical to, you know, bring people on the team for short periods of time. You know, I, I'm seeing a lot of that now. So I think that's probably what you're expecting to happen. And if that turns out to be true, then that's just going to make the ability to collaborate and, and build institutional you know, knowledge much harder and mm-hmm. also much harder to access because, you know, I can't remember how many times is I, I've worked with people that have maybe been at my company for 20 years. It's like, oh, yeah, we tried that a couple years ago or 10 years ago. This is what we learned. And it's not documented anywhere. If they yeah. hadn't been standing beside you in that moment, you would have done it all over again. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, now granted, should have knowledge transfer methods in place and documentation to hopefully overcome that issue. But it's just kind of reality of Mm -hmm. the way people work. Uh, So imagine, you know, half of your workforce are contractors that come in and out on a project by project basis, right? You know, maybe they work frequently with your company, but how is that going to change the dynamic of how you innovate in the future? So that that's a, I think that's a implication that the companies have to consider, and it's like how do you address that? Uh, is it through technology? There's one that I didn't include here, but I know uh, I forget the company, but they they were using augmented reality to have you know experienced you know soon to retire employees transfer knowledge to newer employees, uh, so they can kind of keep the knowledge alive uh, in the company over time. 
Uh, Andrew, I don't know how you feel about this, but this absolutely terrifies me. Every time I see like one of our IBM fellows or a senior level technologist retire, yeah. I just want to like, grab them and be like, no, you no. can't leave until I interview you for a solid month and get all this stuff out of your brain. K- KT is hard. Knowledge transfer, is, it's hard. Um and, you know, I think even just the basic old people are just bad at writing things down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so any, anything that helps us here is going gonna, is gonna to be great. And I mean, as, as you said, with contractors coming in, it's that, that shorter time frame. So it's not just that there's more information to be transferred and it's, it's deteriorating more quickly. So it's all the more important that it's captured at the right time. And the companies no longer own the expertise either. The expertise may be living with someone that only works with you on an intermittent basis. Hmm. This is how IBM has lasted for a hundred years. Actually, we hold the expertise to like how the systems that power these companies were built, and we continue to maintain them, and and that perpetuates our need. Um, worrisome, worrisome. So. I want to bring it all back together. You kind of summarized towards the end, um, these futuring inputs, key changes that are increasing, decreasing, or holding steady. So let's go through, um, you broke it into categories like work trends, things that we'll see change about what it is to work uh, in the STEM economy, um, company industry trends, and then organizational creativity trends. So work trends, you definitely called out remote work, citing that working from home has grown 40% in the past five years. And you wrote this paper long before COVID happened. What what did you discover that made you think that that number would increase even further? Yeah, so I mean, so those future inputs are really what we're used to create the, the those future drivers that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you do to create the drivers, which are what we use to kind of build the stories of the future, is, is those inputs like that. So it's kind of, you know, are these things changing and what direction are they changing? So, yeah, yeah so we, we see that consistent trend of more remote work. What we would call COVID would be an event, right, that kind of really changes or maybe potentially drastically alters the future. It's hard to tell. But the, the consequence of everyone working from home is my, my guess is we will see more remote work right in the future and i think all of the problems and challenges associated with remote work are being highly emphasized right now and much better understood so that i think the technology advancement to enable remote work to be more effective in the future is going to accelerate uh, much more quickly. So I think that's just going to be kind of a, potentially it could be a virtuous cycle, right? Because now there's better technology and for enabling remote work. So more people will work remotely and it could just keep going from there. Yeah, that makes sense. The second one you call, you called out was productivity helpers, bots and other tech used to increase efficiency, reduce wasted time. I see this every day as something most enterprise uh, software products want to somehow incorporate into their systems. You were seeing this as well. Yeah. So that, that was a, a weak signal that I think I pulled in, you know, there's certainly, you know, I had, if you clicked on that link in the paper, it, it would take you to an example or two. Uh, but yeah, it's, 
seeing signals of it. You know, I think when you do futures work, you, you try to pull out kind of more concrete trends, things that have got some data behind it. And then you pull out the things that we call weak signals, which are much more tentative, but they're, you know, they're signals of what potential future directions you might go. Andrew can probably add to that weak signal, make it very strong. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, Andrew, if like almost 100% of the projects you're on are about increasing productivity. Yeah, I, I, the increasing productivity, the, the cost avoidance, That's I, I see that a lot. Um, ha- having a, assistants handle sort of the high volume more on simplistic is the wrong word, but the, the high volume questions, right? So that you can, you know, save your experts for the harder ones. Also see a lot of use for, for bots where they're, they're essentially training up new employees. So as they're, as the employee is going along, they've got the bot next to them and they can ask it questions and they can come up to speed more quickly. Again, helping particularly helps in areas with, you know, high turnover, Training used to take months. Hey, with the with the bot at their side, maybe it's weeks now. Uh, yeah, definitely see. Think we'll see more of that. Just to add on to that point, Andrew is, and for the designers listening, that's why every time you are told to incorporate AI into your product, the first thing that somebody's going to ask you is, "I think it's a bot. Could you make it into a bot?" Because they deliver so much return on revenue because they are. Uh, really good at increasing productivity, decreasing costs really quickly. But the, the very next thing you have to do is you have to find the content. And that's that's something we've definitely seen as a challenge. Uh, so early, early in the COVID time, we were asked to put together a bot to help. Um, there was a company, that were, the employees were you know, working from home now and they didn't know how to connect to the network and needed a bot to help them. We said, oh, sure, we'll, you know, we'll take your troubleshooting information, we'll put it, we'll, we'll, and we'll train the bot with it. And they just, and we had a bunch of Word docs dumped on us, right? So, yeah. So there was no step-by-step. Um, so if, if you don't have, if you don't have that process, you know, you'll be building it. The, the bot isn't going to be magic. Um, you, you need to have the right information to, to get it going. Yeah, that's the less fun part, huh? It's all uh, work. It's still it's, it's still work. working. Again. That's why subject matter experts should get paid a lot. So again, in work trends, the next two things you talked about were contractors on the rise. We talked about that. Choosing to freelance. We talked about that. VR and AR for business. I find this one has been really challenging. Every time I see a company try to like come up with some really cool viable use case for VR, AR, like they, they put it up on the main stage. It's like, we're working on the future, but then like the next year it goes away because nobody really wanted to look at charts in three dimensions in space. So what's the Pokemon Go version of this then? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, so there's a trend. I think the trend is really investment in, although I didn't really see uh, great examples of it quite yet. But I, I think, you know, if we kind of bring it back to product innovation, product service innovation, you know, I think how do you leverage it to communicate concepts, you know, I think, or you know, like I said before, bring people all into the same room. I think from a creativity innovation perspective, mm-hmm. those are the types of, of things that I think would be most useful. You know, does it have, I, I always question, you know, what's the real benefit of the kind of immersive experience? Um, I could certainly imagine from a design perspective, if you can, you know, create it pretty easily, 
and create an immersive experience to kind of bring to life whatever your idea is. But uh, yeah, I think it's challenging to figure out what are the real world applications until the technology kind of gets where it needs to go. So so we're currently doing, you know, WebEx or Zoom meetings where we can see each other and we might have a shared whiteboard that we can squiggle mm-hmm. onto, but it's but we're still falling short, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is a real challenge. You know, I'm trying to teach some creativity classes right now and, you know, run some workshops and you know, everyone's trying to have to figure this out. The tools are much better today than they were even five years ago, but they're still not there. I think even just uh, Zoom, you know, how we look at each other on the screen isn't necessarily conducive to having great interpersonal conversations. So I think that's where the augmented or virtual reality potentially can help is help make it feel a little more real or, or maybe personal is a better word. You know, how do we make this impersonal Brady Bunch kind of image on your screen more interactive and productive? It's right now, at least to me, it doesn't feel that way. For me, it feels that if if I've met the people before, then the, the WebEx kind of reinforces it. Mm-hmm. And I have a hard time bridging it otherwise. Uh, I don't know, Jen, how you felt about it. I was noticing and I was feeling guilty about it that once I was working from home and doing WebEx calls every day, like I felt mentally fatigued mm-hmm. more so than usual. And then I found this paper, I think it was from maybe Harvard Business Review or MIT or yeah. something that was talking about the cognitive tax on your brain when mm-hmm. you're looking at video of people your brain is trying to pick up on cues that you would normally have in a face-to-face conversation that you, that are flattened in video and if you have multiple videos going on at the same time your brain is trying to pick up cues of like body language and tonation and and minute facial expressions across many people simultaneously so it makes perfect sense that if you're spending more time on webex or zoom or whatever like yeah you're going to be more tired if you're using the video feature all the time and this sounds so, yeah. like the kind of thing that would affect some people more than others too i bet and just one more totally. One more thing as a manager, I have to keep track of how do I, how can I make my group more creative when I'm wearing half of them out with this video call? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, turn the video off. It might be better in some cases. And, you know, I've seen some examples out there where you're trying to arrange people differently on the screen so that it kind of maybe feels like you're all sitting together at the same table versus in these different boxes. So so there's early examples of innovation and happening now of, okay, how can we make this more personal and avoid that kind of fatigue issue? Because th- if you don't solve that issue, I, I don't I don't think people are going to be at their creative best, right? When you, if they're mentally being taxed by all these other things going on in their environment. I feel like five years from now, what we call video conferencing is going to feel like what triple tap phones were to the iPhone now. You guys remember mm-hmm. like if you had buttons and you had to like tap them three times to get to the right letter that you wanted to text. Oh, and yeah. 
we were all fine with it until iPhone came out and they're like, Oh shit, this is a lot better. Hopefully we go down that way. Um, I just wanted to say one thing about if anybody is interested in like the future of AR and VR and how that's coming along, I would highly recommend taking a look at the work being done by magic leap down in Florida in collaboration with Argo design here in Austin. I am not a gamer. I am not a fan of putting a VR headset on, but I spent some time last year playing with what I think should be out now, one of their latest VR experiences. And it was badass. I could have sat in that headset all day long. It was amazing. So go play with it. The last thing you recommend or you talk about in work trends is the aging workforce. I don't want to talk about that too much because it depresses me because I am <laughs> the aging workforce, but it is true. Like it's happening and I don't, we don't see older people, especially in the technology workforce these days. I'm just wondering, like, you think that's going to change like 54, 55 to 64, 64 to 74. Like, is that going to become someone we see sitting next to us? I, I think so. Just the way demographics are shaping, that's what's suggested is going to happen. And, you know, maybe they're, they're more experienced people. So I think that kind of meshes up with some of the other drivers, you know, such as that uh, dynamic workforce. So those older doesn't necessarily have to be, but they may also be the same. The aging workforce may also be the remote workforce or the contractor workforce. So I, I think the main message overall is the workforce is going to, ch- the composition of the workforce is going to change dramatically in the future. And companies need to have some ways of working and acknowledging that so that they can actually make their teams work effectively together because it'll be so different than years in the past. Gosh, so many things changing. So, okay, I just want to wrap this up with you called out four organizational creativity trends. And to me, like people out there listening, IBM designers, you know, we have been you know, for the last seven years, trying to really get ahead of the curve with our creative culture, our innovative culture. I think Clay has some really interesting insights on how we might need to innovate our own innovation culture. So Clay, um, take us through these four. The first one is crowdsourcing innovation. Yeah. So if you just look at the trends uh, so far, at least in the consumer products industry, Company, big companies are reaching out to, you know, the crowd, you know, or also in other areas to academia, experts, external experts to bring new ideas in. So the reason why for that might be because they don't have that innovative culture or they're not supporting that kind of culture and and, and they need to reach out to, to bring that information in. So that, that's certainly happening a lot, a lot of crowdsourcing. There's the industry-funded research, you know, so again, going to the academics for fresh new ideas. I think developing in a similar way, maybe some incubator models to kind of bring in that um, external expertise uh, for new ideas. You know, I think certainly, you know, acquisitions is another way to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And then lastly, like I said, those innovation methods like design thinking are, you know, really important. You know, that, that's certainly a way to embody a, a creative culture is, is bringing in uh, approaches that uh, speak to that uh, much more deliberately. So there's many different ways to bring new ideas into a company. And, and that's what companies need to be thinking about is what methods are going to, are you going to use and what do you need to consider if you want to use any of those approaches in the future? 
So exciting. So interesting. New stuff is coming. Phil Gilbert, uh, Doug Powell, if you're listening, I hope you take note of some of the ideas that Clay has put out there because I think he's right. I think he's right on a lot of these. Uh, Clay, before we wrap up, and I should have asked you this in the beginning, could you just really quickly tell us like the kinds of companies you surveyed and how you vetted this research? Yeah, so it's so again, this was more of a student project, so I wouldn't call it a you know a really large, um, highly vetted one, but it, it's a typical of what I would call a, a, a futures study. So you do a lot of research, you know, on the internet, you know, just looking for, like I said, weak signals. Those are less vetted pieces of information. You know, they're just kind of suggests what the future might look like. And then you actually, you know, look through, you know, academic papers. Uh, other kind of sources of information to pull out all of these different trends. But really, it gets into the interpretation of that information where the stories of the future that you create are are kind of what a futurist does. And, uh, you know, they're made up stories, right? They're just kind of, uh, you build multiple scenarios or stories of the future and how it might play out. Because really what the goal of doing that is to help the client think about possibilities. And if the future plays out in one of these different ways, what might that mean for you? And how are you going to prepare for that? So really, it's just kind of a big, to me, it's a big creativity exercise of uh, imagining the future and how are you going to act in that future? And how do you bring the future you want to come to life? And and how do you avoid the things that uh, you don't want to happen? So fun, really fun work. So um, to wrap this all up, if you're interested in doing the kind of work Clay does, check out the graduate certificate in foresight from the University of Houston. That is how I found Clay, just exploring this extremely unique program that they've put together about how to become a futurist and the kinds of exercises that you can do to put together reports like this. Andrew? Yeah. You want to wrap it up for us? I, I, I do. Clay, thanks so much for being with us. We, we had a wonderful time, learned a lot here. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug here? Uh, not really. I know I'm still a student <laughs> in this, uh, but yeah, I, I might try to, you know, I'm tempted to put a Twitter account on this or something to keep track of it. But uh, right now you can just find me at, at Clay Bunyard on Twitter and look up my name on LinkedIn too. Be another way to go. Sounds great. You can find our show at at AI Zen Podcast on Twitter. You can find me at at Andrew R. Freed on Twitter or Andrew Freed on LinkedIn. Jen's on LinkedIn as well. Jennifer Sukas. Thanks so much for being with us. We we really enjoyed the show and we can't wait to talk to you all again. Yep. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. 